Number five, managing for the master. First quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Hello, Pine Knoll family. Good to have all of you here. And today we are doing lesson five, dealing with debt as part of the first quarter of 2023, managing for the master till he comes. John Pauline will be our moderator, but before we begin, Rodney, all the way from the Philippines, is going to offer our prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious and loving eternal Father, as we come before you today, we would like to thank you and want to praise you for your goodness in our lives, for the provision the direction and guidance. Lord, we know we are unworthy. We fall short of your glory. For that we come and we claim the blood of your dear son, Jesus Christ. May you cleanse us and may you reclaim us once again. As we continue with our discussion, we pray, Father, that you will be with our families. And for the families who have been not feeling well, or doing well at this time. Lord, we also pray for comfort for the families who have lost their loved ones. May you comfort them and that, Lord, they may have the hope that you are coming back to reclaim us. We pray for John Pauline as he facilitates. May your teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit lead us through that we may be better managers that recognize you as our God. Thank you for listening and hearing our prayer. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rodney. Appreciate that prayer. This is the fifth in a series on managing for the master, which is biblical stewardship. And we've been looking at the impact of money in several of the more recent ones and discovering, if nothing else, that money is not trivial spiritually, but it can be part of our commitment to God. It can also signal when things aren't going well. So this lesson number five continues with the topic of dealing with debt. And this particular lesson won't have a lot of biblical texts, but there are a few biblical texts that seem to relate to the topic. And we'll have a look at those and then talk about some practical concerns related to dealing with debt. Going to the handout, number one, debt is living today on what you expect to earn in the future. It is borrowing resources you haven't earned yet. You are exchanging your future time and talent for the immediate use of someone else's time and talent. That generally means you're living beyond your resources. So the suggestion is we begin with Romans 13. Romans 13 is a very practical chapter about issues of how you relate to the state, how you relate to money, how you relate to other people. And let's take a look at verses 7 and 8. Pay to all what is due to them. Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So this is an interesting piece. It's referring to how we relate to government, for example, taxes, things like that. But it also makes an interesting comment. And that is, owe no one anything. So the question is, is that a universal principle? Is that something that we must follow 
in every place and under all circumstances. Taking it as we often have, statements like this in scripture are to be understood, all other things being equal. All other things being equal, it's better to owe nothing than to owe something. And so in that sense, I think it's a very valuable principle. But let's go up to number three. We can come back to number two later if we have the time, but I want to catch some significant turns that we might not otherwise get to. Number three says, why do people get into financial difficulties? The lesson offers three reasons, but I'm wondering how many reasons you can come up with. So the question is, why do people or how do people get into financial difficulties? What do you think? All right, Lou, we'll get us started. When we see things, we hear things, and we think, I need that, you know, and that can get us in a lot of trouble. Okay. Thank you. Michael? It's not a one-size-fits-all kind of question. People get into debt, significant debt, sometimes a circumstance beyond their control. The breadwinner suddenly dies in an automobile accident, but that doesn't mean that the house payment isn't due and the car payment isn't due, things like that. Or a uh, guy comes home and tells his wife, well, I told you they were cutting back at the office. I got my papers today. I'm be out of a job in two weeks. So there's all kinds of reasons why people get into debt. Of course, there's the other things. People do just dumb things. I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada, and my brother-in-law was a masonry contractor. It was on Monday morning, and he was driving to a job site, and here was two people, a man and a woman, dressed very nicely, guy wearing a suit, tie and his wife in an evening dress walking down the roadway. He stopped and says they were heading towards the airport. He said, you need a ride? She said, yes, we both need a ride. So he got in this work truck he's got. He drives him to the airport. And on the way, she said, this nitwit I married gambled all our money away, maxed out our credit cards. She says, the only thing we have is our airline ticket. So give this back home. But we haven't figured out yet how we're going to get the car out of the parking lot. Those kinds of things are just, they're kind of funny to look at from the outside, but they're tragedies for those families. Thank you. Neil? Goes back to the old saying, I want what I want when I want it. There's a big difference between what I want and what I need. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you. Henry? I will try to summarize them into two different categories. I may get in financial difficulties because I made bad decisions, or I may get in financial difficulties or in tribulation because I was in the unfortunate circumstances. Some were under my control, and some may not. And then you have a whole bunch of different categories under those two big umbrellas. And typically, we think on that as the result, usually, of bad choices. But many times, it's just unfortunate circumstances. Well, very good. This group never disappoints. And so I'll just share with you what the lesson itself said. The lesson offered three reasons, but you've covered them all and then some. The first one is ignorance, that some people get into difficulties because they're just not aware of biblical principles or secular principles for handling money. Even PhDs can be financially illiterate. And I'm surprised being in an academic environment when you have conversations about money, that often it's evident people don't know the very basics of taking care of their finances. So ignorance would be one. 
And we could maybe combine that with the next one, which is greed, as generally what Henry was saying, people's mistakes, dumb things people do, etc. Ignorance, greed, the whole point of advertising is to raise your personal desires. And when personal desires get raised up, people often have a hard time denying those desires. And as a result, they live beyond their means. A comedian once said, the cost of living is whatever you make plus 10%. And that's kind of funny, but it's also true. We simply get used to stretching just a little bit beyond what we actually have. And the end result is not a pretty one. The third one, personal misfortune, natural disasters, being born into poverty, somebody gambles away all of your money, etc. So here's a practical question then. People get into financial difficulty for a lot of reasons. How do you change bad financial habits or unfortunate circumstances? How do you get out of financial difficulties? Any thoughts on that? How do you change financial habits? How do you get out of unfortunate circumstances? Joan? I think, first of all, recognizing that you don't have good habits, right? I think too many people have either seen, well, my parents did it this way and it worked out okay for them, or my friends do it this way and they seem to be managing okay. So you don't necessarily realize the path you're on or just how difficult it can become if you don't change your decisions. So First, it's knowing that you're not necessarily making good decisions and then being open to learning. I know it's a funny statement to say in this day and age, but between the resources online that are available, churches doing teaching on how to manage your finances, there are so many resources out there. If you're willing and open to learning how to become better, there are charities that help you bring in your finances. Let's see what they look like. Well, maybe you shouldn't spend this much on this, right? And they sort of talk you through it. So as long as you recognize there's a problem and you're open to learning, there are enough resources out there for someone to build better habits. And they are just that habits, right? Like any other, it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to be uncomfortable. After a while with enough practice, it'll become a little bit easier and easier and you get better at it. At least that's what I think. Sounds like we got some professional advice there. We can all use it. Thank you, Joan. Anyone else? Henry? When we talk about changing bad financial habits, then we cannot make the assumption also that everybody has the same access that I do to have all that information on the internet. That's the assumption that everybody has the internet or that I can read. That's the assumption that we all can read, right? So I think it's a huge combination and sometimes we may oversimplify it the solution. Somebody gets in unfortunate circumstances of being a victim of a human traffic. It'll be in terrible financial circumstances with no way out until somebody rescues them, right? And even getting out of that, just being free doesn't mean, okay, now I have abundance. I need to start all over again with an internal conflict, emotional injuries that may take me to make bad decisions and continue to be in trouble. Michael? I had the opportunity on a few occasions to try to assist people that would come to see me about when they were in financial difficulties. I say, well, do you rent or do you own? Well, commonly they would own the house and we're behind two house payments. We got this payment due and that. And I said, well, first of the thing you want to do is make sure you have your house payment current and get that paid. And so that's current and pay that as number one. And of course, food and those kinds of necessities next. And if they shut off the power of your house, let them shut it off. 
Because keep this in mind, you can't go live at the power company if you get evicted from your house. You would think that people would understand that. These are just fundamental concepts, but I was amazed how little they would understand it. You just have to learn there are certain circumstances in your life and be prudent about them. Very good. Thank you. Good advice. Dan? I want to just mention how fortunate I was in that in my family, I had wonderful examples that I could follow. My father was not so good at keeping out of financial problems, but my mother was wonderful at managing the finances in our family. And so as I grew up, I had perfect examples of how to manage money and how not to manage money. And so I think I was really a fortunate person to have those kind of examples. And I've always felt badly for other people who haven't had those kind of examples to develop those kind of insights when they were young. Mm. Can I say something, John? Sure, go ahead. Out of Danny's past, but when he was a younger guy, his parents were poor. And you know how young kids are, they want better cars and whatever. He wanted a better car. He wanted to know why his family, his parents couldn't buy a better car and why they were always having to buy these used cars. And so one day, his mother showed Danny their bank account and showed the expenses and the income. And once he saw the bank account and the expenses and income, how old were you then? The story is even more interesting than that. The story is that my mother said to me, the amount of money we have in the bank account is for your sister's college education. And that if we continue to save at the rate we're saving, we'll have enough money to send you to college. And once I understood what the money was for, I stopped complaining about what I wanted, about a better car, not a new car, but a better car. My mother was a wonderful psychologist. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Sherry? Something on a more maybe trivial part of it is that I have seen some people that use going out and buying something to try to solve an emotional issue that they're having. It's one way to calm themselves or to help themselves deal with life. And so I think sometimes finding help in dealing with some of the issues in our lives can help not submit to the temptation of getting something more than you can afford. And also, I liked what. Alyssa was saying that sometimes if you have enough information, you can understand the situation better rather than just kind of working in the dark because people vary quite a bit in how much they have been able to learn through their lifetime and what their natural gifts and vulnerabilities are and what they've learned. So there's a lot of variation in that. And the more we can learn and the more we can develop some sensitivity to paying attention to it can help. Very good. Thank you all. A couple of things to add to that. The support of godly friends. When we get into financial difficulties, we should not be ashamed to reach out to trusted friends who may be able to change our attitude or give us a different perspective or offer just that one thing that clicks and now you have a better handle on it. As Joan would note, good financial counselors can be helpful. And these days, many of them are online and free. Whatever process you use, get educated about finances. If you're in financial difficulty, it's worth taking time to learn how to do it. And through the years, I've always subscribed to one or two finance type magazines. That's how I got that story about the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts, just simply reading a journal about financial management, etc. So learn all you can about finances. And then a really good start is keep track of your expenditures. 
people don't know what they spend. With a credit card, it's easy. You just lay the card, lay the card, lay the card. And the bill comes and it's kind of like, what? You know, how could they charge us this much? So to be aware, to have a budget, to categorize your expenditures is very, very important so that you know, in fact, what is going out. As mentioned, the cost of living for most people is whatever they make plus 10%. The solution is to spend whatever you make minus 10%. And then you're on your way in a positive direction. Neil? Sometimes what it takes is communication. Many, many times you got a couple, family, one person doesn't talk to the other. They're both spending and they run it up and they don't realize it. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I was reached out to by a pastoral couple who had lived on two incomes. Yeah. And then when the baby was born, they continued spending at the same rate. Yeah. And when they came to me, they were two years in debt. In other words, it had taken two years of income to pay off the debts that had been incurred in just a few years. So we went into various strategies, et cetera, and they came into a better place. I'm grateful that they reached out. Michael? I'm reminded of an old German adage, too soon we get old, too late we get smart. (laughs) That's right. That's correct. Now, there's one text in the Bible above all other texts that is really, really crucial for all of this. So there's one place where a Bible writer is giving financial advice that is so good that every other financial book should be based on it. And that's in 1 Timothy 6. Paul's talking to Timothy, a much younger colleague who may have needed some of that, but Paul's really talking about his own education in handling life. So 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-9. Of course, There is great gain in godliness combined with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. All right. Thank you. Let's go back and read verse six. Now we'll take these sort of one at a time. The principles here can be life-changing for many of us. Six, six. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. All right. So for Paul, a central principle was contentment. Be content with what you have. It's when a person isn't content. It's when their desires, they need something much more than what they have. That's when you get into financial difficulty. So Paul is saying, number one principle is become content. But then we might ask Paul, now hang on, when can we be content? What is enough to be content? And Paul answers that question very powerfully. Verses seven and eight. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. All right. Just a little bit of a tweak to that translation. The word for clothing has a double meaning. It can mean garments, but it can also mean housing. And I think what Paul is telling us, this is very, very practical. What Paul is telling us is it's very difficult to be content if you don't have enough to eat. It's very difficult to be content if you're freezing and you don't have clothes to put on. It's very difficult to be content if you're sitting out in the rain and don't have any choice in the matter. So Paul is saying these are the basics. If you have food, if you have shelter, if you have adequate clothing, 
it is possible to be content. So this is where Paul draws the line between needs and wants. Uh, one of you brought that point out. I think it was Neil. Very, very important point. The difference between needs and wants. If you look at your expenditures, ask yourself, which is need and which is a want? And Paul's saying the needs, food, clothing, housing, etc. Everything else is wants. And that can help you prioritize what kind of situation you're in. I can just illustrate this for ourselves. For 15 years, we've had a small chandelier in our dining room, and it came with the house. Neither of us particularly liked it, but it was serviceable, you know? So that was a need, and it met the need. And more recently, we were thinking, well, it would be nice to have something we actually like. And we were able to find one that was inspired by some of the traditions in Vienna. And that was not a need. It was a want. But there was one that was out of the box and as is kind of a thing. And it was really lovely and we're enjoying it a great deal. So there's a distinction. Lighting was necessary. That was a need. But having a light that would actually bring joy and be beautiful to look at, that was a decision we made. It was worth investing in that want. So needs and wants, knowing the difference, I think, can be very important in judging your expenditures. So Paul is saying, if you have adequate food, shelter, and clothing, it's possible to be content. Everything else in life is a bonus. Everything else is a want. And wants aren't evil. It's part of a life of joy and fellowship, etc. But to know the difference and to prioritize the things that really matter is one way to manage the expenditures. Neil? There's some things that have been written in by Ellen White, and she spoke about bicycles and such like that because people were saving money to buy bicycles and ignoring the donations to the church. So it comes down to our wants. Mm -hmm. What are our wants and what are our needs? Now, there are many parts of the world where a bicycle is essential to doing ministry, for example. So if you read it woodenly as, all right, she said not to have bicycles, so none of us should have bicycles, that could hinder the work of God in many places. So using that sense of judgment about these specific examples can also, be very helpful. Also, yeah. in many places, you'll find bicycles are the mode of transportation, not automobiles. Uh-huh. That's right. Certainly it was true the first time we were in China, you would see bicycles by the hundreds stopped at a red light and then shoom, off they go. It was fascinating. Henry? I have always struggled when we have these type of lessons to study because it is exactly the same lesson that goes around the globe, right? Whatever country we go, we got the same lesson, but typically is created under the circumstances of the type of living that we have here in the States. And it's so difficult to make them applicable for third world countries. I was born and raised and lived for many years in a third world country, lived among communities that were completely illiterate, with no access to education, with no running water, with no access to anything, just victims of systemic oppression. And when you study these type of topics, they're absolutely difficult to address because we make them sound like, oh, there are multiple things that we can address if we just do this and do that in some circumstances. And these are millions of people living in those circumstances that sometimes it makes them feel like God is not listening to them or if they are doing something wrong with their spiritual lives. And that's why they cannot enjoy these passages that we are discussing today. So just want to see that it is important to have that. This is study around the globe. 
And sometimes we have these Anglo-centric lessons that do not relate to a lot of majorities in the world. Thank you. Appreciate that perspective. And there are several people on this call who can speak to that. And I hope that you will, as we go along, help us to say, well, that might not work in my part of the world, but here's what would work. And I think there are broad principles in terms of financial situations, but those principles may need to be acted out in different ways in different places. So good point to keep in mind. Here's Rodney coming from a faraway Philippines. You probably observe many situations like Henry is talking about. Uh, help us out. I originally come from Papua New Guinea, and I was just keeping quiet and just thinking about um, in the context, like where I come from, we don't pay rent because it's a communal ownership. Anyone who is born into a community, he has a place and there is a social support that you will come up with a house or something like that. I think if I look through, and as I was listening, First Timothy 6 verse 3, I see two things, godliness and contentment. I see that those are very grand principles because anywhere in the world, they apply contentment. Even in the developing countries, you need to be contented with what you have. And you can also avail godliness. As I can see, I think being godly really solves most of the problem. Taking God into all the planning it helps in a way because when one put God as the Lord of his life, there is a certain degree of impression when you go out trying to figure out what is a want and a need. And I think that applies in the side of the world that I come from. Even though you are poor, you will still have to choose you know, what extent or type of simple clothes that you need to get. What type of food that are more expensive? And when you are under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I mean, when you are in God, I think you have a better choice to do and to be afloat instead of being in debt. Thank mm. you. Yeah, I like what you're saying there. And I was just thinking with the needs and wants, the need can be supplied by rice and beans. The want might be pizza, okay? So where you're in a situation where your needs could even take you out of contentment if you are insisting on other types of ways of meeting those needs. So I don't think there's one rule for all because in different circumstances, one has to wrestle differently. I'd like to probe you a little bit though, Rodney, since we're broadening our thinking here as a group in a communal situation. So you have communal housing. What about the food and the clothing in those type of villages? It's very interesting because almost every villages, they have a water source that we use this sifting and cultivation. So whenever you are coming home from a garden, obviously you will have to wash your stuff at the water. And a person from me coming from Papua New Guinea, where we use root crops as our main food. So... At that water source or that river or that creek, that is where the exchange happens. So you see a family coming and washing one type of food and the other family coming. And there is normally certain time of the days that in the afternoon people come and flock there. And that's where the exchange comes in. A family will share what 
they have and the other family will share what they have. And you go back with almost uh, balanced stuff, what you need for the day or for the week. And that's how it happens when it comes to food. When it comes to clothing, I think we go back that it's a little bit more personal within the family. Mm. Very, very interesting. So would you say you live now in a more westernized context at the college near Manila, I think? So you've experienced both sides. Would you say that contentment is easier to achieve back in the home village than it would be on the campus? Exactly. Hmm. Interesting. Folk, we're learning a worldwide perspective here. Excellent. Nancy, what do you have? I'm just a little backtrack in defense of our wonderful gift of spiritual prophecy just a little bit about when sister white said not to have bicycles i learned in a lecture again from pine knoll from dr provancia on the spirit of prophecy that yes she did say that and it was at a time when bicycles were a new craze and they cost more than you could furnish your entire living room. You had to pay for a bicycle. And it was really getting extreme. There was races and it was a craze. And later, years later, when they became a reasonably priced item, she highly recommended them. So I think we need to remember the context again, just like when we study the Bible. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Very helpful information. All right. First Timothy 6 and verse 9. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, here's a point that might be useful in Papua New Guinea or Mexico or any other place, and that is the enemy of contentment is the desire for more, is to expand beyond where you are now. And Paul here is contrasting contentment with the words he uses, desire to be rich, foolish, harmful desires. It's possible for a person who is poor to think that becoming rich would solve their problems. A person who is already rich knows that riches don't solve your problems. They create problems. So Paul, I think, has put his finger on core principles that I think are pretty universal. The goal is contentment. The enemy of contentment is the desire for more, the desire for much more. You wonder, someone has $100 billion. What is their motivation to drive for 200? What is the point? There's something else going on here, something deeply psychological, etc. And so I think Paul is putting his finger on something extremely important, although Joan will probably point out that I've completely missed the point here. Go ahead, Joan. I would never do that. (laughs) But I do think that there's an assumption that people wanting to make more money, it's about the money. I don't necessarily agree that in every situation that someone who's driven to like the person you're describing who has a hundred million and decides, well, I'm going to go for 200. Sometimes it's the challenge. Sometimes a person is just driven to accomplish something that they never thought they could. It's creating something that just happens to get you at 200 million, but you just created something that you thought would be a really cool creation and didn't necessarily do it to reach a certain amount of money, right? It's just the way you're wired. You like to create new things. You like to achieve different things. And maybe you're going to give it away. Who knows, right? It's not necessarily because you want to accumulate it. It may just be a byproduct of something else that's driving you. So I don't think it's necessarily that the person just is driven to make more. There are a lot of things that can be playing a role in that, right? 
And then the second part is, I find it difficult to understand what contentment means as it's described when it's used in the Bible. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that feels like, right? So is being, if your personality is ambitious and driven and all of that, does that mean then that you're not content or is it just a part of who you are and that's what makes you tick, right? So I think that word is so ambiguous and really difficult to apply. And as a result is very difficult for me to describe to someone else, right? I can tell someone that, you know, let's say I'm talking to someone about debt and I'm trying to tell them, well, you know, the Bible says to be content. And they're like, okay, great. How does one do that? What does that feel like? What does that mean? Does that mean that I don't strive for better? I don't strive for my kids to have a better life than I do. Like, it's just too wishy-washy a word for me to be comfortable with. Sounds like a Supreme Court justice was asked to define pornography. And his response was, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Is that perhaps, Joan? Is that helpful? Not at all. It may be hard to to precisely define what contentment is, but wouldn't a person who's achieved it know it? But that's not helpful to the person that hasn't, right? If you can say that I've achieved contentment because in the way that it makes sense to you, but how does it help me help someone else know what that is or what that looks like, right? So yes, I understand the sentiment, but I don't find that sentiment helpful. All right. Can anyone help Joan find more helpfulness in contentment? Livia? Yeah. So weren't you suggesting, John, that when you're talking about the guy that had a million, why does he want another million? Mm-hmm. I mean, aren't you like not being content for him? <laughs> Is there a part of contentment where we're trying to compare ourselves kind of maybe? I don't know that I'm helping, but what about the parable of the talent? One guy was given 10, one guy was given five, one guy was given three or one, or and they all doubled, duplicated within their means, within their abilities and stuff. So I don't know that it matters whether you have a million or 10 million or, you know, 10 bucks. Well, I think you make a good point. I think Joan was trying to point us in that direction as well. There may be people who have a hundred billion dollars and are striving for more that are very content with where they are, but they're striving for more, maybe due to a vision of some kind, a desire to make a difference in the world, desire to help people, et cetera, with the resources that they have. So Joan used the word mushy, I think, and contentment is something I think that's very personal. And we may not be able to define it with absolute precision, or at least not until Michael speaks. In my view, contentment is satisfaction with the circumstances of your life if they are at the present time. That doesn't mean that those circumstances won't change. They can. They can be become better or they can be even tragically worse. But if you look at people like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, Gates didn't set out with, I'm going to become a multi-billionaire. What really got him going, he went and talked to IBM and he said, let us, his very small company at the time, write the programs for your personal computers. And they said, go ahead, let this guy do this because nobody's going to buy these things anyway. IBM thought of computers as great big mainframes. And so it turned Gates into a multi-billionaire. And Zuckerberg got an idea in his dorm room at Harvard. And it turned out it, it, it turned him into a billionaire. But I don't think either one of them was set out with the idea, I'm going to become a multi-millionaire or even a billionaire. But rather, they had a great idea and thought, let's see where it goes. And that's often the case. Do you know where the Facebook idea came from? 
And originally it was the Facebook, not Facebook. The idea was simply that every college has a little journal that they produce at the beginning of the year with the photograph and name of every student. And at Harvard, that was called the Facebook. So that inspired him to create an online equivalent of this Facebook that had been produced for decades at Harvard. Yeah, it's an example of American capitalism. (laughs) The idea that, and people forget this, the fact that Bill Gates was able to do that, or Mark Zuckerberg was able to do that, or Google was so successful. One of the facts behind that is that that's an opportunity that exists for everybody. And I remember Bill Gates being interviewed on Larry King several years ago, and King asked him, he said, are you worried about companies like Sun Microsystems? He said, no, no, no. They build different kinds of computers. They're big mainframes. I'm not concerned about those. What I'm concerned about is two kids working in a garage. Good stuff. Lou? It's a very individual experience. Contentment. And whether you're rich or poor, there's nothing wrong with people who have accumulated massive amounts of wealth. I've seen more recently on the news some beautiful stories of people who have accumulated tremendous amount of wealth and they go into these poor schools, give all the kids the opportunity for a college education. And they do wonderful things with their wealth. And I think there's other people who are wanting to hoard everything. So I think it's a matter of the heart. Am I operating from a selfish motive and to accumulate, to keep up with the Joneses, to look a certain way and all those superficial reasons? Or am I really fully committed to God who takes selfishness out of me, which I can't do? And I can't judge anybody else's motives, but I can only take mine to God and ask him to keep me where I need to be and giving and loving and not hoarding and trying to keep up with everybody and have everything everybody else has, because that's a facade. That's not real. And God wants us to be real. Thank you. Dan? I'm thinking about Bible verses I've tried to memorize. And there are a lot of Bible verses on peace. I don't recall that many on contentment that I have. There's a lot about peace. And when I read those verses on peace, it almost seems like it's a gift from God to the people. I think that to try to get this feeling or this attitude of the mind, I think outside of God is maybe it's impossible because I think we were created in such a way that it is only underneath certain circumstances. And it's probably as we relate to God, if we relate to God properly, that we get this bonus or this whatever you might want to call real peace that comes from what he is capable of doing. So I think any other systems are probably semi-artificial and maybe give us only temporary benefit. So contentment is like peace in a way. Peace is something you kind of know when you have it, but you might have a hard time exactly defining what it is. Sort of an attitude, a thing of the heart. Henry? I think that probably we need to know what Paul knew about Timothy, because this was the advice from Paul to Timothy. So it was the definition of content that Timothy needed to have. And probably we are applying it to all of us. Because I do agree 100% with John when she was saying to me, it's a wishy-washy word that I cannot really make a lot about that, but I am sure Timothy got it. 
we just don't know what were the circumstances that Paul needed to address because recently my daughter told me, I am so happy that you were not content to keep living where we were before and we moved here because we see now the results. And I am so happy that my dad also and my mom left the rural area where they were living. They were not content with that and they pushed us up and I became the first professional in my family in a country where we only get 5% of the population has the privilege to even finish that by the circumstances. So yes, I think that applying the advice from Paul to Timothy as a broad principle that can be applicable for everybody, I will choose rather what Dan just said. How about if we change it for peace? Because that's something that we all can enjoy and seek at wherever the circumstances that we are. Thank you. Ashley. Yeah, I just wanted to, I guess, and I think we all know this, that you can be both content in some areas of your life and discontent in other areas at the same time. So I think there's a very dynamic process and not everything's going to be great all the time. And I don't think you should be content with everything at all times because there's some things that are not okay and you shouldn't be okay with and you should strive for more or a different situation. And so I think that's why it gets very tricky defining like what is contentment for a universal definition. So it's tricky finding that like balance between maybe achievement and when your motives are genuine and you're simply wanting to do good for the world versus like selfish motives. So it takes a lot of, I think, self-reflection and honesty, which no one can tell you which one you're experiencing at the same time because the behaviors look the same. So. All right. Thank you very much. Gail. Well, much has been said, and I particularly appreciated what you said, Lou, about it. It's what's in the heart. Just going back to the initial, I think it was Joan, was it, who said, I'm just not sure what it actually means. I was very fortunate to have, I believe, contentment modelled in a very beautiful way in my home. And what it looked like was a mother who never criticised, who was not envious. I never saw her covet anything. There was a lot of contentment about what she had. At the same time, my mother was very aspirational. She desired a lot for her children. She desired a lot for her home. Up until the last few years of her life, she was buying and selling property. So I suppose it is about the heart, but it's being content with what you have doesn't mean that there's not aspiration, doesn't mean there's not drive. But I think it presents itself in the manner of a person. Very helpful. Thank you. Lou. One of my favorite books that I think I've referred to in the past is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. He was in Auschwitz as a psychiatrist. He observed the behavior of all the other prisoners and how some were very selfish and stole food from other prisoners. Some were generous and shared their food with other prisoners. And he talks about we have a choice. And it is no matter what our circumstances are, no matter how bad. I mean, here he was as a prisoner in Auschwitz. And the circumstances we can't even begin to comprehend. And yet here he was making these observations right down to the very end saying we have a choice. How we're going to relate to our circumstances when they're really bad or when they're really good, we have a choice, whether to be selfish or whether to be loving and kind, which is from God, of course. Thank you very much. 
Let's go to number six in our handout, and we'll start by reading Proverbs 22.7. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Okay, that's a pretty strong statement to avoid borrowing as much as possible, it would seem to me. And the thought is, in what sense would the borrower be the slave to the lender? For sake of time, I'll just cover a couple things here, and then we have another major discussion point toward the end. But it seems to me that the problem with borrowing, at least excessively, is that we've lost the freedom to decide what to do with our future income. So there is a sense of slavery there. When you owe nothing to anybody, you have complete freedom to do with whatever you saved, plus what you are earning now. But when you borrow on the future, you've lost control of that future to a considerable degree. And so the biblical writer is telling us that this is not a good place to go. So if you find yourself in debt right now, what are some things you can do to get out of debt? And the lesson offers several suggestions that I'll just share with you here. First of all, commitment to faithfulness in all things. I remember Graham often saying, Graham Maxwell, saying things like, no cheating. God wants a full commitment, no cheating. And I think applying that here is the idea that we are totally committed to God's will, God's ways, to trusting Him. And then the second step is to have a moratorium on additional debt. So if a person finds themselves really deep in debt, to make a commitment not to get further in debt. And one way you can do that is, let's say you have a bunch of credit card debt, and you're paying it off at some high exorbitant interest charge, to get another card, to stop using the card where you owe a bunch of money. Get another card that is, what do you call it, a no-fee card that doesn't charge interest unless you leave it more than a month. So use that card for the convenience of shopping, but pay it off every month and then be paying down the other card. So a moratorium on all new debt, no more spending on credit. For that to happen, you got to have a budget. And we mentioned in an earlier session about the 10-20-70 plan, which is one way where you can reserve 20% of your income for paying down debt. And if you live within the 70%, you will get out of debt in a hurry. Separating spending on current expenses from debt payments. So get a separate credit card just for the stuff that you need month by month that you'll pay off. Actually, for me, my mind, the ideal is what we did when we were young. And today, this is kind of really, really old school, but it worked. And it's amazing how it works. We made a budget very early in our marriage, maybe almost 50 years ago. And we decided what we would spend each month. And then we got the cash and put them in envelopes. You know, food money, gas money, whatever. Just had a bunch of envelopes in a box at home. And when the envelope was empty, we didn't spend on that anymore that month. It would get a refill on the first of the month. That was an impressive way of just making sure we stayed within our budget. Now, you can do that with a ledger. You can do that with some online applications and stuff. Lots of ways you can do it. But you got to get a handle on what you're spending and having a budget and then sticking to it. For us, it was easy. We watched that food envelope carefully because we didn't want it to run out on the 16th of the month. <laughs> that would not have been fun. So it really helped us to think through and manage our situations. If you get a bonus, 
don't touch it, pay off debt, use it to pay off debt, knock that debt down because interest is deadly. Then here's the key. How do you handle the debts themselves? And there are two options. The lesson offered one, I think there's another one that's even better. I'll give you both. Make a list of all your debts. Let's say you have six different debts. Might be a car payment, might be a credit card, maybe another credit card, maybe a home improvement loan, et cetera. Make a list of all the debts. And there's two strategies. Let's say you have six debts. One would be to rank them from largest to smallest and pay off all of them at the minimum rate, but the smallest one throw everything else you've got at it. And the idea is if you get rid of the smallest debt, there's a sense of progress. You see, that's easy to do. Maybe the smallest debt is a few hundred dollars. Knock that off and say, I'm making progress. And that's encouraging. I think there's a better way though. Make a list of your debts in the order of the interest rate. If one interest rate is 19% and the other 6%, get rid of that 19 as fast as you can. So I would make that the priority, pay off all of them at the minimum, but the one with the highest interest rate, throw everything you've got at that until it's gone. And you will save much, much money doing it that way. And then when you've paid off the one on the bottom, then take that money that you used to pay that off and now apply it to the next one on the list and keep going until you get rid of all of them. Michael. Over 100 years ago, Baron von Rothschild, he went in Paris. He said, I'm not sure what the seven wonders of the world are, but I know what the eighth one is, compound interest. (laughs) It touches upon what you just said. The interest will kill you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, compound interest works the same way in the opposite direction. If you have resources and you invest them and don't touch them, compounding is a plus. If you have debts, the compounding accelerates your path to ruin. All right. Well, I just wanted you to have a few of those thoughts and and have those recorded for people's benefit. But now we come to a really key discussion, and that would be number seven. Reading the Bible, one could get the impression that one should not borrow for any purpose. Just wait until you have cash on hand. You could get that impression from some Bible texts. In addition, for those of you Seventh-day Adventist tradition, You have Ellen G. White with statements like this one, Councils on Stewardship, page 257. Be determined never to incur another debt. Deny yourself a thousand things rather than run into debt. Avoid it as you would the smallpox. Kind of a cool statement in the light of the current pandemic that we've been experiencing. All right, so here you have two statements from two different directions. Both say never enter into debt. So here's the question I want to hear from you. Are there situations where taking on debt makes sense? If the borrower is the slave of the lender, when is it worth the risk to borrow? Rita? If what you're getting into debt for is going to appreciate in value so that at the end of it, you get more than you've put into it. Like Mm. for most people, taking on a mortgage will do that. I like the way you express that. So borrow for things that appreciate and value. As you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, yeah, tell me a few of those. I'd like to... (laughs) I'd like to get into that. But yeah, you've clarified it now that generally speaking, housing is an appreciating asset and therefore is a value. Okay, Dan. I remember when I grew up, I had the philosophy that you were advocating. And then it dawned on me that renting versus buying a house, that buying a house had a lot of advantages because of the benefits from income tax. 
and other benefits of appreciation. And the same thing with education. I think there's some professions where going into debt is worth it. On the other hand, there are some other areas where you can't ever make enough money, hardly enough money to pay off your debt. So I like what Rita said. I think it really is. If you look at debt as an investment, then it makes sense, provided that it's a good investment. But I think a lot of people don't look at it that way. And one of the things I think is really important to, and I wish that you had said this in your money section, is when I first learned that credit card debts were in the neighborhood of 18 to 20%, I was shocked that I would be willing to pay 20% or something in that neighborhood over a month. The interest on credit cards is just absolutely crazy, I think. And anyone that understands that would be frightened of carrying any debts on credit cards. But I don't think many people realize what the government allows the credit card companies to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. So watch those interest rates. Alyssa? We don't have a credit card and we don't have debt. We cannot function in this society. Have you noticed how many places do not accept cash anymore? You cannot go and rent a car without a credit card. There's so many places that it says no cash accepted. So here we are in this dilemma of having to get a credit card and having to add up some debt on that. I think it's really discriminating against those people who are against getting credit cards and against racking up debt and wish to pay cash because it's getting more and more impossible to pay without a credit card. Very well said. And that's why I mentioned if you owe a lot on a credit card, get a second one, make a distinction between you. This is the where I'm paying off debt. This is the one where I'm not incurring debt. The good thing about credit cards usually is that if you pay it off within the month, you won't owe any interest. But you'd better be tracking all month on what you're spending. So what we do is there's line items in the checkbook for each of our various budget items, you know, like furniture and food and car and uh, all the rest of that. There's line items there. And when I get the receipts, you know, let's say my wife went out shopping, when she brings me the receipts, I go into the book and I enter those items. I take it out from under that budget. You see, it may have so many dollars in it. I reduce that by the amount of the credit card receipt. And if you do that consistently through the month, you won't end up with a bill at the end of the month that you can't pay. So that's one way of managing that. But you're absolutely right. In many parts of the world, you can't survive without a credit card. And therefore, it's essential to pay off each month so you don't get caught into that painful spiral. Gary? Your proposals, which I think are good, the problem is they all require responsibility. And the reason many people are in debt is because they're irresponsible. And so you're asking an irresponsible person now to be responsible, which for some people, maybe they can make the change, but there's a lot of people that can never make that change. And the consequences are painful. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Well, we do programs like this for the sake of those who are willing to change. And even those who can't with the right kind of guide, the right kind of guidance, the right kind of friends, support, etc., can over time, I think, be further along than they would otherwise. So we encourage all of you 
who may be listening to think in terms of finding support, finding help if you can't do it on your own. Bottom line here, I think, is never borrow for depreciating items. That to me has been an absolute throughout our marriage. What is a depreciating item? It's any item that gets less and less in value. Cars, for example. When we were young, how did we afford cars? Well, we'd often bought used ones and cheap ones. Even if they were new, they were cheap. (laughs) And that waited until we had the cash. And sometimes you can even get a good discount. If you say, hey, I'll write you a check right now for this amount. Well, let me talk to the manager and then they'll come back later. You got a car. (laughs) So if you've got the cash right there, I'm going to write it out right here. You're done with this deal today. It's up to you. This is what I got in my account. So saving until you can afford it. Clothing is a depreciating item. Definitely. Furniture, appliances, remodeling the house. The moment you finish remodeling, the value of that remodeling begins to diminish. So I would say even for major remodelings, save and have patience on that. Vacations, obviously, depreciating items that may not be worth too much once they're over. These are the examples of depreciating items. In addition to the house, an appreciating item would be education. And because it's well known that people who are educated have incomes generally higher than people who do not. So that's another example of appreciating items that one could borrow for. Now, let me end with a little surprising story. It was surprising to me when I heard it. Ellen G. White made this statement that we just read, and I'll share it again because it's pretty uh, categorical. Be determined never to incur another debt. Deny yourself a thousand things rather than run into debt. Avoid it as you would the smallpox. When Ellen White died, she owed, I believe, $86,000. I checked with the White estate director this week, and he wasn't sure, but he says it's in the 80s somewhere. I said, well, I heard 86, so I'll go with that. It's close enough. She owed $86,000. To put that in perspective, the average house at that time was $5,000. When she died, she owed 17 times, 17 houses equivalent. The average income at that time was $432 a year. She owed the equivalent of 200 years of the average income. What do you do with that? Here's a lady who said, avoid debt like the plague. Neil. To be facetious, do as I say, not as I do. Ooh, that hurts. We'll discover whether or not that's fair. But yeah, that's what it looks like at first glance, isn't it? Yes. Nancy. I cheated and I read that last night of your notes and somehow she had balanced it against the future sales of her book somehow, something like that. So there was a backup. Okay. So one aspect of it is that royalties on her books came back to the estate and would in perpetuity, just like Elvis uh, still making millions of dollars a year in royalties on the music and stuff like that. Even though he's been dead for 50 years, the estate is still receiving those royalties. So she was banking that these book royalties for the foreseeable future would care for any debt that she might leave behind. That still doesn't tell me why she would go into such debt, but that's an excellent comment. Yeah. Rita? 
the bit that you've put there from councils on stewardship, and I don't know that book well, but it says, be determined never to incur another debt. Was she writing to an individual when she wrote that? Or was that a general message to the whole congregation, so to speak? It appears to be to an individual. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a big difference because she's trying to help the single person here Mm -hmm. who's got themselves into a big problem. You're doing exegesis, aren't you? Very very good. (laughs) That's what it's called. That's I'll take that. Well done. Ask the context. We tend to take statements like this as if they were written to us. In this case, it wasn't written to you. There may be a principle there that would be good. I mean, avoiding a debt for depreciating items has served us very, very well. A lot of worry goes along with debt, even if it's on an appreciating item. So debt is to be avoided as much as possible. Because it sounds to me, so she's saying here, the advice that you are giving when people have got into debt, don't take on any more debt. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think there's one more piece here. Ellen White had a third appreciating item that she could never shake. First is a house. Second is education. Those are two items that increase in value and therefore are worth borrowing for. She had a third one that she believed in with all of her heart. She had a passion for mission. And anybody approach her with a need in the mission field or something like that, she would just write a check and then borrow in order to cover that. And she did that many, many, many times as she would be aware of needs in the field. You know, the Southern work was one, particularly work for African-Americans. She had a passion for that and was constantly supporting that. So she was constantly supporting missions above and beyond her income. But knowing that Over the long term, if she stopped spending when she died, it would balance out in the end as it has. So she made a calculated decision that the immediate needs of the mission was worth more than her staying out of debt. But she saw that as an appreciating asset, as one that was worth borrowing to do so. Now, without the royalties in the future, that probably would have been a foolish decision. But in actual fact, looking at all the circumstances, she was all in. Some people lately have been writing stuff about how Ellen White was a calculating person who everything she did was for the sake of increasing her wealth and her influence and power and so on. She was all in. She was all in. Everything she had was committed to that work. You can think she's wrong on different things. You can disagree with this or that. Don't tell me she wasn't all in on what she believed. And so it does illustrate the point, and here's where the word mushy may come in again, and that's fine. But the reality is when it comes to these financial issues, each case is unique and requires their careful attention. Therefore, if the case happens to be your case, don't try to go it alone. Get the best advice you can, get the best education you can, get the best websites, whatever that you can and learn all you can so that you can deal with your own unique and particular situation and make sound decisions looking forward. The decisions that Ellen White made to get into debt would have been disastrous for many people. And therefore, she didn't talk about this all the time. And people were shocked when they found out after she died how much in debt that she was. That was a real surprise. She did not recommend that for other people, but that was the path that she felt God was leading her to. So these decisions are often very individual decisions, but taking the advice of a multitude of counselors can be extremely helpful.
Well, thank you once again for an awesome conversation, and we'll close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, each of us faces unique situations when it comes to finance, unique situations when it comes to stewardship. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a willing and open heart to serve you in whatever way you direct, to place our finances on the altar before you, and to be open to your leading in every way. We thank you so much for your generosity, for your kindness to us even before we were born. And I pray that you would help us to see more and more clearly just how amazing and beautiful you are. So I pray, Lord, that you'd be with us as each of us wrestles with our own unique response to the message that we have received. And we look forward to taking on those challenges with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.